The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. The seed planted in Tom Cox as a little boy has matured into the largest species collection of conifers in North America. In this episode, we talk about his over 4,000 plant collection and how you may bring interest to your garden year-round. Tom is a pioneer in the evaluation of conifers for adaptability in the southeast and is recognized as one of the leading authorities on growing conifers in the region. Cox Arboretum and Garden is now a site for the preservation of rare and endangered plants from around the world. He is a frequent lecturer on the subject of conifers and other woody plants. He co-authored a book titled Landscaping with Conifers and Ginkgo for the Southern Landscape and has been published numerous times in both British and U.S. conifer journals. I'm honored to have captured this amazing story and plant wisdom of Tom Cox in this episode 44, Year-Round Garden Interests from Cox Arboretum with Tom Cox. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. Tom, we're in mid-February. What are your suggestions for adding interest in our winter landscape? We use a combination of plants. I think people miss the boat when they only look at the landscape in the spring, summer, and fall. And winter is actually, to me, one of the most exciting times to be in the garden. We look at it, first of all, from the shape of plants just in general. We also look and we plant for winter interest of bark. Many plants, such as the paper bark maple or Acer grissium, they have very interesting brown cinnamon colored bark that exfoliates and strips and is really pretty when the sun is shining through it. River birch is another southeastern native that's a wonderful plant. So aside from the bark, again, the form and the texture, we also then look at evergreen interest. This serves a number of purposes. One is some life. I say frequently say to people when they're touring here in the winter, I have them look out beyond the arboretum. Now, so let your eyes go out and look how lifeless the landscape is now in the forest. Everything is kind of asleep. Now let your eyes come in and take a look at the arboretum and how much grain and how much is going on in there. We literally have bloomed 12 months out of the year. I said, you know, look how much life there is. So you're going from lifeless into life. So we use things such as hollies, rhododendron, uh, azaleas, and of course, a lot of conifers. Let me point out, first of all, that we likely have, and it's been documented, 
the largest species collection of conifers anywhere in North America and perhaps even the Western Hemisphere. We are known for our rare and endangered collection of conifers, as well as many that aren't rare and endangered, but they're rare in terms of the landscape in the southeastern United States. Before we started this program, and I want to say we are one of the pioneers in planting conifers in the southeast to a large extent. Before us was really the J.C. Ralston Arboretum up in Raleigh and the Atlanta Botanical Garden. We were amongst that group of three to really go out and experiment with a lot of conifers. We started to collect them, determined that a lot of them are far more suitable here than might have first been thought. Another aspect for us was I found conifers a very fascinating plant group. They're old. They actually predate our modern flowering plants, such as maples and dogwood and hickory, sweet gum, all of those plants azaleas, rhododendron, those are all referred to as modern flowering plants, whereas the conifers are what's referred to as gymnosperms. They bear their seed naked, and they were on earth quite a bit of time before the modern flowering plants even arrived. A part of their rarity was they were pollinated by wind, and then the modern flowering plants came along and were pollinated by insects. So really before the insects became prevalent, Conifers were pollinated by the male pollen cones filling up with pollen and the wind blowing and scattering the pollen here and there. I found them a fascinating group who have survived earthquakes, the earth being covered with glaciers, a lot of cataclysmic things that have happened that conifers have survived. So they're still around. They're survivors. For us today, they just create so much winter interest. Many of them turn colors this time of the year. We have a pine that is unique to our location, which is native to primarily up in the Appalachian Mountains called a table mountain pine. This particular one that was found in Tennessee, it turns bright gold in the winter as a reflex to cold weather. And then in the spring, it turns back green. So we do many things here to excite the visitors. I would say our visitors really probably enjoy this place more in the winter than any other season because they're able to see so much unique flora and textures and forms and colors. If a visitor comes and they see a conifer that they like, they wanted to have one in their own home. Is that possible or you're so rare that they're not even available on the market? That's a great question. And I get that question all the time. And I'll just back up here. When we started, This was before the internet. Plant searching was relegated to either your network of constituents or to catalogs. Frequently, gardeners like myself, we look forward to the wintertime and receiving that full-colored catalog. That's how you ordered. Then slowly, the internet came around and just took everything by storm. Long way to answer your question, but today, most of our plants are labeled. Visitors come in and we suggest they take two pictures. They take a picture of the plant and they take a picture of the sign. Then when they get back, they can look at the picture of the sign, go in there and Google that, generally find a source for it if there is a source. As you allude to, many of these plants, they're not available and may never be available. Many of them are. They do have the plant names, which would help them search. So yes, I would say probably 75% of what we offer here is available somewhere. 
Heard it said that the best time to plant a tree was yesterday. What is the best time of the season or the year to transplant a conifer? It is right now. We spend the majority of our time in the winter. Along about November, we start transplanting not just conifers, but our plants in general. That is done because plants don't read catalogs, and sometimes you plant it and it becomes too big for the area and needs to be moved. We'll move this winter probably two or 300 plants around to other locations. I don't know if I mentioned it to you earlier. I now am handicapped. I've got a rare and incurable autoimmune disease like ALS. I'm not able any longer to get out and walk in the Arboretum. So my time is spent pretty much in areas where I can either drive on my wheelchair or ride around on our four-wheel Polaris. So many plants that we have planted here and there have to be moved or otherwise I would never see them again. Long answer to your question, but the very best time is right now. And the reason for that is the plant tends to be dormant. Conifers are never fully dormant. So one wants to be careful when they plant those not to leave them out of the ground too long where the roots can dry out. Not so much a concern for the non-coniferous plants. I would say November through Early March would be time. I don't like to do things in early March. You want to leave time before they start to leaf out or start to actively grow for the roots to become reestablished in the ground. Winter is the best time, winter and late fall. Spring is an exciting time because of the many blooms that are happening. What are some of your recommendations for spring blooming plants? Stick with the conifer thing for just a moment, then I'll move on to more your larger question. Most of the conifers produce a unusual growth pattern in the spring. Don't know if you've ever really observed one up close, but the buds start to elongate. Many of those are purple, red, gray, silver. Much of the growth becomes variegated or might turn yellow on the new growth. While they don't bloom in the strictest sense where one thinks of a azalea bloom, they have a unique bloom. Man, I want to tell you, you want to see something exciting in the spring. Look at the new growth on a spruce where it's starting its new cones, new male growth. Very exciting. So aside from the conifers, we in the South, we have a very long growing season. I would say down here, we can do probably more spring plants than most places in America, if not all places. People don't realize it, but there's so many things that will grow here. We're in zone 7B. We are uh, warm enough to bring things from colder climates, and we're cold enough to satisfy the chill needed for some of the plants coming from northern climates. Some of those plants, of course, include the ubiquitous dogwoods, both a um, Asian dogwood, which blooms with its leaf on, and the Florida or American southeastern dogwood, which blooms before the leaf emerges. So many selections of those out there today. I would never go in the woods and dig one up. They would be inferior by named cultivar. But literally, there's red blooms, pink blooms, variegated, weeping, yellow foliage, Just about any combination of color, texture, form is available today with dogwoods. I would also say that in general, my preference leans a little bit towards the Asian dogwoods. They seem to have less trouble here with any diseases. 
sometimes our American dogwood on the East Coast is bothered by some fungal diseases. Another plant that is just taking the gardening world by storm in the Southeast is redbuds or Circus canadensis, the eastern redbud. There's been so much breeding work done and continuing to be done there. There's purple leaf forms, there's yellow forms or weeping forms again, variegated forms. Anything that you want in a redbud is pretty much there today, and there's even more breeding work going on. This last fall, I happened to be up in Tennessee, which is like the mother church for red buds and dogwoods and seeing some of the new breeding work going on with a guy named Denny Warner from NC State University. Just so exciting to see what the homeowner is going to be enjoying in a few years. Aside from those, another one I like a lot are these new Encore azaleas. Today, most azaleas you're going to find in the market are likely going to be the Encore. It's so named Encore because it blooms spring sporadically in the summer and again, a pretty good repeat bloom in the fall. So the name Encore. And again, there's probably about 39 different selections of Encore azaleas today in a multitude of bloom forms. Also, rhododendron is good for the south. You want to give it some shade. We also like Carolina silverbell or Halesia, Carolina. Those do well here. Of course, the perennials, we do a lot of perennials here, which because we're space challenged now, we've had to learn to incorporate perennials into the landscape. I used to find those pretty boring and not something I was interested in. As I've gotten into those, particularly epimediums, find a lot of interest there. And also our visitors come and they always look for those little spring blooming ephemerals. Of course, another one that's an old standby in the south are camellias. They have the camellia sasanqua that tends to bloom in the fall and into the winter. Then later on in the late winter, up to mid-spring, are the camellia japonicus. Those are also old-timey proven good plants for the south. I would encourage you not to focus everything on spring bloom. One of the mistakes we make in the South, in my opinion, is that we focus so much on spring bloom. There was once a singer, some of your older listeners will remember a singer named Peggy Lee. Peggy Lee had a song called, Is This All There Is? A recent song had a catchy title said, I shaved my legs for this. And sort of the idea is that you plant everything for the spring, and then when the spring is over, you're kind of left with a lifeless landscape. I would say be a four-season gardener. Plant those things in the winter that's going to bloom like helleborus, the bark, the winter interest, the conifers, the evergreen, hollies, rhododendron, et cetera. Then in the spring, you've got these wonderful colors. Learn to find things that will transition into your late spring, summer, and then your fall color, and then you're starting again. So don't just be a spring gardener. Don't make this as this all there is, or I shave my legs for this syndrome. <laughs> Back on the red bud, even the ones that are developing new, are they going to still be best in filtered light, or are they developing where they can be more in full sun? They are really not developing them more for full sun. I think, at least here where we are, you want to give them about three-quarters of the day sun. Some of the real dark foliage ones, there's a new one I'll just plug called Black Pearl. It is a pearl or a gem of a plant. It might not fare as well in full afternoon sun, which I define as after two o'clock. You probably get by with it, but if you want to err on the side of caution, also with a variegated one, the same thing. 
give it a little afternoon shade. If you don't have afternoon shade, give it a go in the sun. I have a saying I use has served me well over the years. When you fall on your face, you're moving forward. So if you're not making mistakes, if you're not falling on your face, you're not moving forward. So I say to any gardener, even the seasoned gardeners, I continually learn. I make mistakes. I uh, was asked one time how you get good judgment. And you get good judgment from experience. Well, how do you get experience from bad judgment? <laughs> Learn to get out there and try things in your own garden. See what works for you. To answer your question, generally, I err on the side of a little bit of afternoon shade. I wouldn't be totally against full sun. What is your most valuable garden mistake? Come on, that's hard to say. I made so dog on many of them. I don't think we got enough time today. To, <laughs> but you asked for my most valuable. I would say one of those is figuring out that plants that you see in books. You read a book and you read about a certain plant or you see a certain plant on the internet and it will say this plant will only grow in zone nine. And that's sort of like down in Miami and those areas. Well, for a long time, I took that as gospel and I wouldn't plant things here that I didn't think would make it. Then I began to experiment and find out that, yeah, I'm cutting out a lot of plants. Boy, they sure do work well here. So plants don't read labels. So one of the things is Kind of ignore some of those high numbers and learn to experiment in your garden. That was one. Another one was figuring out that we lose more plants here in the summer than we do in the winter. A typical gardener, including myself, when you go into a nursery center or look in a book or a catalog, you tend to look at the low number. And if a low number says zone four, you say that plant will live here. You're not giving any thought to will that plant live in our summer. Yeah, it may survive our winter, zone four, we're zone seven. So yeah, it's going to live here. It'll take two degrees in the winter, but is it going to take 90 degrees, 99 degrees in the summer? And you see, it's not the summer heat that kills it. It's the high summer heat at night, along with heavy rain and our heavy clay soil that kills it. A lot of plants, you just got to know that you got a garden for summer as well as winter in terms of how you treat that plant. You got to give it drainage. How do you cite it? Is it east, west, northeast orientation? Another mistake we made was planting things too close. Now, we still do that to some degree. And we do that because we'll get a small plant. We'll get another small plant. Well, they're too dadgum far apart in the beginning. So we'll put them closer to just help the landscape look a little better, knowing in five, 10 years, they're going to have to be dug up and moved. If you're buying a plant that's five, six feet tall or even three or four feet tall, you got to think about what's that plant going to do in a couple of years? Is it going to outgrow its site and do I want to have to move it so quickly? So allow space for your plants. Those, I think, are really probably some of the main mistakes we've made here. Now, you say you're always learning. What is the thing you've most recently learned? I'm going to couch it another way. We're doing some experiments right now with some very rare, very endangered parentheses, plants I'm never going to see again here, plants that would be practically impossible for me to find. So the experiment here, which is part of the learning you're alluding to, is moving those plants again from those areas that I can't get to probably in too much shade now for them to grow like I want them to grow and moving those out into areas where A, they have more room to grow, B, there's more sunlight and C, a different soil type 
then just to see if they'll survive transplanting this time of the year and will grow and prosper in more sun. I emphasize again, Greg, that these are plants that if I lose even one of these, it's going to really devastate me because I said they're just one of a kind plants that I was only to obtain overseas from people that would send me cuttings and we would get them propagated and they were very small. We've nursed them for years. Hopefully that in a roundabout way answers your question. It's maybe not so much learning today, but learning the effects of things that we're doing. Oh, yeah, that's very fascinating. A very, very good thing to be learning. Now, you and your wife, Evelyn, started an arboretum, this arboretum we've been talking about so far in our conversation, Cox Arboretum, in 1990. And it's known for having some of the largest species collections and conifers in all of North America, maybe even the world. Tell us about Cox Arboretum. We bought this land about circa mid-80s. We turned around and moved here in 1990. And honestly, all truth revealed, I had no intention of doing what we've done. I did not buy this land to do this. What we did select from was we wanted an area that was not covered with pines. We wanted to find old growth hardwood, which we did. Many of the trees here are north of 150 years old. Huge hickory and oak, sweet gum and poplar. We wanted to replicate every growing condition that is in this area. So we have wetland, we have streams, we have ponds, we have shade, we have high areas that are no shade. So we can literally replicate from wetland to dry to swamp any condition that we want. But let's say we get a plant and it only lives or best grown in swampy conditions. Very easy to put that plant in that environment. That was some of the conditions we were looking for. We searched for about six months for the right piece of land. I knew it when I saw it. That may sound made up or contrived, but I did. We drove in here in the afternoon. It was about oh, close to dusk, big for sale sign. There wasn't even any road going into the property, just a cul-de-sac of a dirt road. A big sign that said for sale. I walked in there and I told Evelyn, I said, this is it. I know this is what I want. So we bought it, started bringing trees in right away. Those trees would have started in about 1988. We started bringing little trees in, just sticking them out here and there. We moved here in 1990, built the house. At that time, I worked for Bell South, back then Southern Bell. Worked downtown. So I was literally coming home at night, getting home at night in the evening when it'd be dark. And a flashlight in one hand a hose in the other, swatting mosquitoes, and trying to keep these little plants alive. We didn't have irrigation back then. Wherever we could go and get plants, somebody would give us something and we could order it. It was no order to it, no thought to how big it was going to get, no definition, just a stick arboretum, if you will, just sticks out there. Well, those things grew over time. Some of them we lost. Most of them we didn't. By sheer dedication and a lot of dead gum hard work, we kept these things growing. And today, there's some of them are pretty good-sized trees. That's the genesis of all this. Little by little, we grew, uh, created a database. Our daughter created a website for us, which was a big help. The thing I was always good at was I was always good at networking with people, finding people to connect with. As our collection grew, our notoriety grew around the world. And next thing you know, People were willing to send us material that nobody else was getting. We traveled to 51 countries, to include China twice, Spain. We were in Russia. We had the benefit of meeting with the top scientists around the world. 
Wherever we'd go, the top scientists would always carve time out and meet with us. On our last trip, the top conifer expert in Mexico drove five hours from Guadalajara over to where we were, spent a day out in the cloud forest of Mexico. All that to make the point, because of these connections and because of our notoriety, we had access to a lot of material nobody else did. Then we had people to propagate for us. That's pretty much how we came to be since 1990. There have been the ups and downs. There have been very few downs. This has brought me more pleasure, particularly today, as I've gotten to where I can't get out of the wheelchair much. So much uh, joy in being able to go out and be with my friends in the garden. Friends defined as my plants. That's amazing. I didn't realize you had traveled the world for all of these plants. Yeah, we've been in every continent except Antarctica. Well, I don't guess there's many conifers growing in Antarctica, are they? Zero. <laughs> That's a very perceptive question, my friend. <laughs> well, I thought it was just all ice. <laughs> well, you're right. It is. Ice and penguins. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Had a penguin in court charged with a felony. The judge let him go without any bail. Says he didn't think he was a flight risk. <laughs> there is much more from Tom after this. TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. Why do you think the location you chose is kind of a sweet spot for conifers? I know you've talked about it had all these different conditions there. Does it have to do with the latitude or, or anything like that? Well, that's, you've, been, you've been reading my mail, <laughs> haven't you? That's a great, great, great insightful question. Yeah, latitude has a lot to do with it. A lot of times I'll just go in there to our globe in the study and I'll get that globe and I'll just spin it around and look latitudinally at what's what. We... Uh, Find a lot of things, and it's not just latitude, it's elevation. Mexico has become a new frontier for us. Man, I could talk all day about some of this stuff, but I'll just confine it to Mexico for a moment. We think about Mexico when you watch these Clint Eastwood movies, being hot and dry and desolate and flat. Highest elevation in North America, east of the Mississippi River, is Mount Mitchell, North Carolina. And it's only about 6,000 feet, give or take. You go down to Mexico and the Sierra Madre Oriental and Occidental, and you got mountains north of 19,000 feet. In those mountains and those cloud forests and what have you, you've got a lot of snow, a lot of cold, and a fair number of conifers. It's a little known fact. The highest number of species of pine anywhere in the world is found in Mexico. Now, why is that? Because the glaciers, when it glaciated North America, pushed those plants down into Mexico, and they found refuge and lived down there. So a lot of that material comes from cold areas. We're able to bring it back up here and sort of repatriate it. Now, that's one thing is looking at elevation. Same thing in Tibet, Nepal, and parts of China, the Himalayas. Another area that we find works very well. Here's Taiwan. Another one is a genus out there called first, ABs, first. First typically don't do well in the southeast. They're high elevation plants that were just too hot for them and our summers, the evenings are too hot. Some of these firs out of like Greece and Turkey and the Caucasus, Asia Minor, they're wonderful here. They just have never been tried. People took the dogma that, oh, they won't grow here, so nobody ever grew them. Long-winded answer, but why do they grow here? Some of it is latitude. 
we're at 1,200 feet right here where we are, which is not terribly high. We got a little bit of a lake effect from a pond we have and also a 32-acre lake close by us. Pretty good soil here. Another thing is drainage. Conifers lack drainage. I'm glad I remembered to mention that to you. None of our land here is flat for the most part. It drains well. That helps a lot. We can grow things that can't grow in Michigan, and we can grow things that can't grow in Florida. Some things that are in Michigan will grow here because we get cold enough. Some things in Florida will grow here because we're warm enough. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. The top guru in the world on conifers is a guy named Zolfi Breezy from Hungary. He visited here three times and he wrote an article on this and he called this a conifer sweet spot where you're able to pull things from both extremes and they would live here in this area, sort of a little niche area, if you will. You couldn't do this in Oklahoma. You couldn't do it in Nevada. You couldn't do it in Macon, Georgia. The great plantsman Michael Durr, he asked me in one of my earlier questions, uh, written questions about who was one of my influencers, and certainly great Dr. Michael Durr from University of Georgia is considered in the South one of the gurus. When he came here the first time, he brought Coach Vince Dooley with him, and one of his first things says, wow, you can grow things here we can't grow in Athens, you can't grow in Macon, can't grow in Augusta. Can't even grow in Atlanta that are growing just wonderfully here where you are. Sounds truly like the sweet spot. Is it southern exposure? How does the land lay? Generally, uh, we're getting eastern. Some of it's eastern exposure where we're getting morning sun. It's really all four, Greg. You've got all the different things that you can grow there, so that makes sense. Yeah, we can move them around. I have another little thing that I use as a guidepost. We run a plant motel here. Plants check in and plants check out. So if you're a good plant, you behave yourself and you complement the arboretum. It's like I told Coach Dooley one time. I said, you know, we're like a football team. If you perform, you get to stay on the team. If you don't, you get cut. We move things around. We try them. If you don't work well here, all of our plants are on skates. We can just dig it up, move it on skates to go somewhere else. I don't say that literally. They're not on skates, obviously. That's just a figure of speech. Plant, maybe with a Western exposure, you figure, okay, it's just really suffering in that middle of July. We might pick it up and move it sometime in the fall over where it's getting afternoon shade. Another big thing is, is it's drainage. Sometimes you can put something in the wrong spot and it's getting water standing there. It's pooling in that little spot. Plant's not happy. Plants will tell you when they're happy. Sometimes plants will tell you, no matter where you put me, I'm just not going to be happy here. Oh, yeah. And that's another big area for gardeners to remember. Things that I would say to your listeners is that don't be afraid to take a plant out. We don't keep plants here for sentimental reasons. Again, if you're not performing, you got to go. I used to be of the mindset, uh, I'd see a plant, it'd be real rare, and I'd say, we got the only one, and tra-la-la-la-la. But it looks like a bad hair day. Oh, we got one. Today, I say, looks like a bad hair day. Sorry, buddy. You got to go. I'll either try to give you away to somebody who can do something with it or it goes on the trash heap. That's just painful sometimes, but that's a decision we always gardeners want to make. And nothing more off-putting to me than to go to a garden and see a bunch of ghastly looking plants. They got to perform or they're out of there. Absolutely. And the last thing I'm going to say, and just get back to your questions, is that pruning for aesthetics, as well as the well-being of the plant. We prune probably more than any place that I know. This time of the year, two things are being going on, moving plants, relocating them, and pruning. Those two things are going on. And this winter time, because you can see the skeleton of the plant, 
and you can kind of see what you want to remove. Taking your time to prune that thing right, and remembering you can't stick that cut back once you make it. Be judicial in what you're doing. Learn to prune. Have your plant looking good, not just saying, I've got one. In so many gardens, they don't do that. I assume you're talking about hand pruning and not power shearing, right? Yeah. Boy, great question. Hand pruning. Now, some of the big shrubs, we're pruning strictly for aesthetics, but the hand pruning, yeah, is done on those. All of our maples are hand pruned. Our conifers are hand pruned. Our blooming plant are all hand pruned. It just may be those big shrubs. Maybe it's a boxwood or something, a holly pruning for a shape. What is the difference between an arboretum and a garden? Yeah, I'm going to differentiate between a botanical garden and an arboretum. Arboretum is a Latin word. The word arbor means trees. Retum means place. So arboretum is literally a place for trees, normally extended to mean exotic trees, not native, but exotic trees. So one would go into an arboretum expecting to see primarily trees exotic in origins. A third word is pinetum. That's you'll see those around are the three things that you got botanical gardens, arboretums, and pinetums. A pinetum is a collection of conifers, not just pines, a collection of exotic conifers. A botanical garden is just that. It's a garden of botanical plants. It can be perennials, native Of course, arboretum could have native as well, but it could be shrubs, whatever. But arboretum is generally, you think about it as trees. What's the purpose of an arboretum? Preservation, conservation, and awareness, education to the public about trees and ornamental display of trees that may not have ever been seen or known. So you're preserving them, you're conserving them, you're displaying them for public consumption, appreciation. You're helping landscapers also to see plants they've never used. Typically, landscapers, they go to school and they learn a handful of plants to use and they go over and over and over. You look in a typical subdivision, it's the same darn plants over and over and over. How boring. People are able to come here and see things they would never see in a typical landscape. Do you find out people are researching your plants, maybe for pharmaceutical purposes or curing diseases or things like that? Yeah, they're not researching our plants as such. They are researching the plant. No one is really coming here to collect. But in a broader sense, I'll give you just a couple examples. One, there's a plant called Camptotheca acuminata. Camptotheca has a property called Camptothecin. Camptothecin is being used to treat ovarian cancer in China. It's got some interesting medicinal properties that is believed to maybe extend to other forms of cancer or even other problems. Another one is a conifer called the Pacific U, U being the Taxus brevifolia. Pacific U has a compound called Taxol. Taxol is a drug to treat ovarian cancer, breast cancer. They've now synthesized that drug. It was originally found though in a U out in the Pacific Northwest. That's another example. They're discovering all kinds of compounds in hemlocks. Another one that was a very interesting plant from a historical standpoint, it's a native plant native to the coast of southern U.S. It's called Pinknea bracteata, or Georgia feverbark tree. You'd only find it really along the coast of South Carolina and Georgia, and it was used in the Civil War to treat malaria and yellow fever, hence the common name Georgia feverbark tree. 
It's a quinine relative, inferior source of quinine, but it was mildly effective. Uh, one more is witch hazel, an old-timey plant still being used today. You go into a drugstore, you'll find witch hazel on drug counters. In my time when I was a kid, you'd go into a barbershop, they'd put it on your face as an astringent. And it's a beauty aid today, but uh, it's an old-timey plant still being used. Oddly enough, witch hazel was used at one time. It was a divining rod to find water. That was the preferred plant, was they'd take it like a witching rod or divining rod and walk around, and that's how they found water, was using witch hazel. Yeah, it's a fascinating world out there. I'll mention one more to you as a trade native up in Tennessee, maybe a little bit into North Georgia, but a lot up in Tennessee. It's called smokebush or cotinus, and it was used a lot during the Civil War as a source for yellow dye. In fact, it was so much used that it became almost extinct. We about over-harvested it. Now it's made a comeback. Common name is smoke tree or cotinus obaveda. Yeah, I actually have just bought some smoke trees. I don't remember the botanical name on them. Craig, what you probably bought were the European smoke bush are more ornamental, more so than the native one. We grow both. Partly, if you went to a nursery, probably didn't buy the ovovators. We've talked some about the extreme plants that you have there, rare plants and things. Would you like to talk some more about some of the others? Probably the biggest standout. There's a tree native to southern China in Zhejiang province. There's only three trees remaining on this Beshuan Zhu Mountain in Zhejiang province, China. When they discovered the tree, which was only discovered, I want to say, early 90s or late 80s, there were a total of seven of them. They dug up three, took them back to the Beijing Botanical Garden, and they all three died, left four in the wild. One of those subsequently perished, so there's only three left. So it would be the rarest conifer on earth. We have one growing here. It's doing very well. The only other place it would have this tree would be the nursery in Oregon that I had the material sent to from England who had a copy of it, and they sent me cuttings. We had it grafted at a nursery in Oregon, so they would have it, and we'd be the only place other than there to have this tree. And we have another one that I found, another fir, was found in western Hungary at a private collection. The guy had actually lost his land and all the trees when the communists took over. They just took everything, left him with nothing. And then when the revolution ended, they gave him back part of his property. And on this property, he had this very rare fur. And I took cuttings while I was there, sent them to my friend in Oregon. He grafted it, kept it for a couple of years and returned the plant to me. We were told at the time Chinese did not want this plant out of the country and that we should not advertise it. I looked at the plant yesterday, and it's actually growing very well here, a very special plant. There's other plants. There's no common name. I'll have to use the botanical name. Terea, T-O-R-R-E-Y-A, Terea, Jackie, J-A-C-K-I-I. In all my travels throughout the world, I've only seen that plant one time, and that was in Hungary at a botanical institute there, and never seen the plant anywhere. We've got other plants here that I've never seen growing anywhere in America, nowhere, despite all these institutions that have been around much longer than us. None of these trees are there. And then we've got non-coniferous plants, plant called Terostyrax, P-T-E-R-O-S-T-Y-R-A-X. We've got one that we just found in China. I'm told there's only about three or four of those 
in circulation in the United States came from a nursery out on an island in Washington State. We get plants from all over the place. It's interesting how these plants come in here. If you take a cutting in Hungary and you send it to Oregon to get it grafted, how much time can lapse before that cutting is no longer viable? It's going to be one of two things is going to happen with that cutting, depending on the genus of the plant. If it's a fir or a spruce or Japanese maple, you're going to graft those onto some friendly understock. If it's a plant like chemicyprus or false cypress or hemlock, they'll dip those in hormone and root them. But the viability of that plant is probably about three weeks if you hit it just perfectly. What you do is you take it and you take your cuttings, you take off some of the foliage to reduce the amount of transpiration or amount of moisture that's given off. You reduce the leaf size, put it in a Ziploc bag, you put in a moist, not wet paper towel, zip that up, let all the air out and send it off. The sooner it gets there, obviously, the more likelihood of it taking. Generally, a graft probably going to have a little more shelf life than something you're going to root. But we have had, in the case of this one from Hungary, I had it with me for four or five days till I found a place where I could mail it. You would imagine you're out in the middle of somewhere and trying to find a post office. All right, first of all, box it up and all that. It's just not something you readily do. I'd say, you know, three weeks for the max shelf life. Can you tissue culture a conifer or is it all seed and cuttings to reproduce it? I don't know of any conifers that have been tissue cultured. It's really out of my knowledge base. The problem with a seed is things do not come true from seed. So if you're looking at a specific plant and you want a clone of that plant, really the only way to get a clone of that is to take a cutting of it. Then you've got the exact DNA of that plant. We typically will find a lot of plants that are bizarre. In fact, I invite you out sometime to see this, but we are known not only for a rare collection, but unusual collection. Just like in the human world where you got Tall people, short people, fat people, skinny people, unfortunately, people that are born deformed. The same thing in the plant world. You take a thousand seed and throw them out there, and you're going to get some genetic variability in those seed. One in a thousand may come up very slender, may look like a toothpick. Another one may come up contorted. Another one may come up with an unusual leaf, or you may have just a mutation on a branch that comes out. The whole plant's green, and one branch comes out variegated, and you find that variegated plant. So for nurserymen, it's a chance for them to make some money because they found a new plant. They give it a name. A lot of times today, plants are patented. Tell us about your book, Conifers and Ginkgos for Southern Landscape. First of all, the motivation. And I think we say that pretty well in the book, but motivation. I'm good friends with a Dr. John Reuter. And John Reuter's over University of Georgia. He's an Alan Armitage endowed professor. And Alan Armitage was considered the guru of herbaceous plants. John and I have been good friends for a long time, and we just got to talking one day, and I said, John, I've been thinking about writing a book. I write a lot of articles. The way I approach writing is I write it in my head for a long time, then one day I decide, okay, I'm going to put this on paper. I said, I'm going to write a book on conifers, probably ginkgo. Would you be interested in co-authoring with me? John brought certain skill sets to the table that I didn't have and vice versa. So we complimented each other. Also, John at that time was living way down in Tifton, Georgia. University of Georgia Extension Center down there in Tifton, which is Zone 8A, way down south. 
His gardening experiences were much different than me up here in Zone 7B. We brought together two experiences, and the motivation really was, and you don't get rich on these books, it was not to make any money, but it was really to share knowledge with people. Every book out there on conifers was written by someone either from England or from Canada, the Northeast or the Northwest. Though they had no Southern gardeners. One, they lacked the knowledge base. They never fooled. We had, which kind of made us unique. I told John, I said, John, we can do something nobody else is able to do. I think we could do it well. We could just write it specifically for the Southeast. It's going to limit our audience in terms of sales, but it's going to be a useful book for people down here who can finally, for the first time, pick up a book written by people who not only have expertise, but have had their hands in Southern dirt. We've actually gardened down here. We're not a professor sitting there in a classroom in a laboratory environment or only looking at herbarium specimens. We actually have hands-on experience. We can write a good book. So we set about writing this book, and a lot of it we kind of purposely wrote to not just be specific to the Southeast, but be a book that would be usable throughout the United States and abroad. I think we achieved that. Of course, the book, when you've got the title, Landscaping with Conifers and Ginkgo for the Southeast, some people are never going to buy it. And I get that, but some do, and the feedback has been excellent. That was our motivation, was strictly to share knowledge with people who had never had a resource to go to. That frustrated me to no end, and I'd pick up a book, and it would say Zone 9, and I'd say, I know it's not Zone 9. I've grown that plant for 10 years. How can you say Zone 9? Well, you say Zone 9 because you don't know. You look at where that plant was growing in Mexico, and you say, well, Zone 9 is blanket statement. Does that make sense? It does. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, and growing a garden or a landscape? I wish that uh, landscapers had more plant knowledge and would design landscapes for the ultimate size of plants. It's not rocket science to do this. If you know you're going to put a plant in the corner of a house, sort of a filler there in, in the corner, you don't want something that's going to expand out like a buffer dial holly or something. There's plenty of plants to meet your needs there with a little research. Now, that's one. Selecting some variety out there, getting away from this monocultural planting, which is never good. You remember the old Leyland cypress. Still like Leyland. We grow Leyland. We plant them as a specimen plant. They're not bad plants, but you put them in a big row where there's no air circulation. You're inviting in all kinds of problems from diseases. And they're not particularly drought tolerant. So it's not a good way to use them. People have learned that they don't too much use Leyland cypress anymore. Another thing, the Russians have a good saying, too soon old, too late smart. And I'm too soon old and too late smart here on this. When you plant a specimen plant, let's say you've got this beautiful, perfectly shaped spruce or fir or Japanese maple, your eye can only take in really one thing at a time. And in the beginning, and I see this all over, I would plant plants too close. So when I'm trying to look at that specimen plant, My eye would be distracted by all this noise going on around it. It's like putting too much garden art out there around a plant, just noise going on. So learn when you go out there and pay $300, $400 for a beautifully shaped Japanese maple or a perfect conifer that you're going to stick out there and you just want your eye to focus and appreciate that. Keep other plants away from it. Learn to make that a focal point. So that was one that I think people could learn a lot from. Another one, again, is learning where and how to plant, all these things we mentioned in the book. Last one would be pruning. And you know the old term, crepe murder or crepe myrtles, not knowing how to prune or not caring enough to know how to prune, pruning at the right time of the year so you don't prune the bloom off. 
None of this, Craig, is rocket science. None of it's hard to learn. People say, boy, you sure are smart. And I say, no, I'm not smart. What I've got is every day of my life or over the last 40 years, I've done this. And if you do something every day of your life for over 40 years and you don't become pretty intelligent about it, you're pretty stupid. If I am smart, it's because through repetition, you keep doing things and learning, subtracting. And some of this stuff is not hard to learn. It's just homeowners don't know. Landscapers don't take the time to know. What's your earliest garden memory? When I was a little kid, and I don't know how old that was, but my daddy was not an educated man. He, he was a smart man, but he wasn't educated. He took me out in the woods one time, and he was making various play instruments, like a little whistle, and he made a whip out of a hickory. He would say, this is a dogwood, and this is a hickory, this is a maple, this is a willow tree. And for whatever reason, that just fascinated me and to the point where here I am 76, and I still remember that. The names fascinated me. He didn't know any Latin names, and I didn't, of course. And then I would go out in the woods, and I would try to identify trees. And I had an uncle that lived in Oklahoma. And I would go out there, and of course, he had different trees there in Oklahoma than we did here in the southeast. And I'm a retired Army officer and seeing all these beautiful fir trees and spruce trees in Germany and snow. I'd never seen snow much growing up in Alabama. And then living in Maryland, seeing all these beautiful trees up there that covered with snow. So those were some of the early memories. And even when I was in the Army and lived on post and I didn't have my own land, I'd always have window boxes. I'd always plant stuff, little postage stamp yards. I'd maybe go out and buy a little dogwood or something, and we'd create beds. And several times I won Garden of the Month. He'd put a placard in our yard. It was always something that was in my blood from that one day when my daddy took me out. We got this property here. It allowed me to pursue, some would say, an obsession, some would say a passion, or some would say both. Here we are today, uh, after all those years. Seed for the Arboretum was planted as a child. It's, it created a love affair with me that has never waned. I've never questioned that. It's never once dimmed. You know, some things you start. I used to collect coins. I used to collect this or collect that. I'm kind of an obsessive collector. You collect something for a few years, you get tired of it. I had a big old stamp collection one time, and I got tired of that. But this is one thing that I never got tired of. I said today, they're my friends out there. Yeah. I'll just say this last thing, and I firmly believe that these plants are aware of my presence. I don't say I go out there and hug them. I don't go out and hug them. I don't go out there and have mysterious private conversations with them. I do touch them from the context of printing. I think on some level, I've had a lot of time to think about this, and I don't think I'm some cultist or anything, but I think these plants are aware of my presence and that I'm a good steward of the land. We don't have a lot of animals that bother us here. So maybe there's this symbiotic relationship with the plants, the trees, the animals, where everything kind of coexists here peacefully. It's kind of my private thoughts on that. I don't often share that. might scare people away. No, I think there's something to that. Everything living is connected on some strand. Mm-hmm. I'm not smart enough to know what that is, or I'm not sure anybody is totally... And you could go into plants and the roots on plants. I've read a lot. It'd be a fascinating read for you sometime if you've never looked at that. How plants nurse each other. Have a plant, one of them out there is not doing well. The other plants will, with their roots, tend to nurse that plant. Well, there's a lot of connectivity we don't understand.
I'm a certified arborist, and when I was studying for that, I started reading about mycorrhizae and the different things that are happening at the tips of the root of the trees and plants, and it just was so fascinating, and it opened up a whole other world to me. I, I don't go out and study it, really, but it was just really fascinating to, to hear about that and to, to hear you say that and understand there's more to it than it's a tree we're sticking in the yard. Absolutely, and are you married? Yes, sir. You got children? I do. All right. Well, just like your children and, and your wife, they got needs and requirements to be happy. And it's your job to help supply those requirements. And it's just the same thing with plants. You know, you've got to, they got certain things they require, be it water or shade or weeds being away from them, maybe drenching them. I'm going to jump off the diving board for a moment here and mention something else. And you're being an arborist. You might find this fascinating or maybe something you already know. There's a tree called a Franklinia. You ever heard of that? Heard of it. You know the story behind it. I've read it. Why don't you share it? The tree was found by a guy named William Bertram down around, uh, not too far from Savannah, on the Altamaha River. This was around 1793. Don't quote me on the exact day, but it was before 1800s. He collected seed, took them back to Philadelphia, planted them. The tree, as it turned out, did germinate. Went back several times. The tree was last seen in the wild, early 1800s. It was never seen again. I mentioned this mycorrhiza or soil-borne fungus. Somewhere along the way, and it was probably cotton, something in the soil caused that plant to die, as opposed to the American chestnut, which lives, it just doesn't, doesn't grow up anymore. It killed that. So it was totally extinct. Well, we have one here. And what we do to keep it alive is at least three times a year, we drench that with a fungicide, one called subdue, that keeps down, I presume you know what Phytophthora is. Yes. Okay, well, keeps down the Phytophthora remorum, which is our Phytophthora. So it's a tricky plant to grow. It's almost impossible to cultivate it. We've had it now two years with, with drench. We'll see. Do you have a funny plant story? We used to get in the car back when I could. And we visited nurseries. People would donate just so much material to us. They knew what we were doing. They knew we didn't sell plants. We rent it for the right reason. And people would give us tons of material, which has allowed us to have this huge collection. I could never have afforded all of this. So we took off from here. We drove down to Mobile, Alabama, visited a couple of nurseries down around Fairhope, if you know where that is. Mm-hmm and Mobile, pretty much loaded up the van, then took off to uh, Louisiana to see a lady who was in her early 90s back then. She still was driving that gator, and uh, she just passed away last year. But Miss Margie Jenkins, and Miss Margie put us on that gator. She said, Tom, I know there's nothing here we got that you don't already have. Put us out there. Oh, I bet you don't have one of these. So she loaded down that gator. Then we head out to Nacogdoches, Texas, to Stephen F. Austin Arboretum, Professor Emeritus there. Dr. David Creech, he just loads us down. And then we're heading back. We stop in Louisiana, and there's only room for anything. I mean, you couldn't imagine how many plants were in this thing. And we stopped there with the guy who actually was the creator of the Encore Azalea. He took a shot into Evelyn. He wanted her to have all these azaleas. Well, coming back across country. So by now, the plants are hot and dry. You got to take all this stuff out, find a place where they'd pull into a motel and get a hose bib out there in the back and a loading dock, water all this stuff, and then let it drain and put it all back in the vehicle. Spend the night, next morning, get up, and the inside windshield be so filled with condensation, water dripping everywhere from all of those plants. And then we start to take off, and some big old lizard crawls across on Evelyn's neck, 
But she's driving all the way back, swatting beetles and a lizard and everything else, trying to make it home with all those plants. Luckily, she didn't divorce me right there. <laughs> we laugh and say she was an aider and a better. Yeah. <laughs> facilitator. Yeah, I was imagining how you were handling watering all those plants. How many days did that take? Well, we actually had to stop twice. It was about a four or five day trip. Then you got to stop. You just don't go in and get plants. You got to stop and spend time with your friends. And like I said, plants sit there during the day in your car, the ones you previously acquired. That was certainly one of them. Back in the day there, we had this old Mazda van. had about 300,000 miles on it. We hadn't moved in here yet. And I had bought an old World War II trailer. It was actually was a truck. Somebody had cut in half and made a trailer from an old World War II truck. And it looked like the Ducats. And that old Mazda van, and it sounded like you pull up to a drive-in or a drive-through. sounded like the Taliban was out there with a bomb. We'd drive here and there with that thing and load that thing up, drive home with the windows down. And our neighbors thought, we hadn't moved in. They'd see this old vehicle and this old trailer. And we live in a pretty nice neighborhood. Well, they thought we were stealing. The guy later on laughed. He said, I thought y'all were stealing. Well, I'm glad you didn't call the police. Yeah, there's a lot of things went into this. Well, just plain miserable days, actually. Every day wasn't fun, as you know, because you work in the field. There's a lot of days where there's have-tos. Yeah. I have to water. I have to do this. I have to get this thing planted. In the beginning, there were so many have-tos. Yeah. I would just conclude with this. I'm mindful of the fact that the vast majority of people that come here either don't have or don't want to have what we've got here with the land and all of the plants and all the work associated with it. This is not for everybody. I get that. Plus, almost 100% of the people out there that are going to come here, unless they're a visiting scientist, are not going to have access to these plants to even get them. I'm convinced that almost all people that come here, they appreciate what they see and what's been done here. Hopefully that's something that's carried on. So there is one last piece of this thing, Craig. And this last piece is what's going to happen to the place when we're no longer able to do it. And that's for anybody that's done this, that's always a conundrum. What happens to it when the gardener who started it can no longer take care of it? Luckily, our daughter who lives today in Ohio came to us and is asked to take this over when we're no longer either here or unable to. That time is really coming sooner than later. She was just here last week, and we put this in a trust for her with a small endowment so that she's able to continue to keep this in the family. We have two grandchildren, boys that are showing a lot of interest in helping with this. I could see one of them or both of them, or at least one of them probably, taking over here and living here and continuing to run this. They got to figure what's highest and best use for them. Is it to do an event center here? Is it to do weddings? There's a lot of things to consider with how you sustain this place financially going forward. At least for now, looks like it's going to be retained in the family. And that relieves one major concern that I've had. Well, that's a blessing to know that it's going to live on in the family. I'd just like to thank you for having the interest in it and putting this all together for people to learn and to bless other people with. It's very easy for me to do this because I'm talking something that I genuinely love and genuinely have a passion for. If we could see this carried on, there's a great saying that I think came from an event that happened at Disney World in Orlando. After Walt Disney had passed on, a group of executives were walking around and someone said, what a shame Walt didn't live to see this. Somebody very wisely remarked, Walt did see it, otherwise it wouldn't be here. 
today, because I've done this so long, I can see the potential here 10, 15, 20 years from now with these things growing even more. And we're continuing, even as of yesterday, planting new plants. You've read the line about the person that plants a tree where people will sit in the shade of that he never will. I see this thing not from the eyes of today, but I see this thing in terms of how it's going to look 10, 20 years from now. There's going to be some magnificent plants here not seen anywhere else. It is today, but this can be a very, very special destination for people that love trees. Tom, tell us how people may connect with you. The easiest way to connect with me would be through email, and that's C-O-X, like the name Cox, A-R-B, first three letters of Arboretum, the number two, at gmail.com. This has been Episode 44, Year-Round Garden Interest from Cox Arboretum with Tom Cox. Thank you, Tom. You are tremendous. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.